There are four major themes, and by four major themes, I mean major themes. I don't mean the only themes that go throughout the book of Acts. The first major theme is the resurrection of Jesus. If you've read through Luke, I would challenge you to read through. You can read through in one sitting. I don't know exactly how long it will take, but Hebrews is probably the book I've read the most, and I know that takes about 45 minutes to get through 13 chapters. So double that, and you could easily do that in one sitting. You're like, oh, I couldn't. You can sit for two hours and watch a movie. You can do this, okay? And you can also listen to it, okay? There's lots of audio tracks there that you can follow along with and that kind of stuff. But there is nothing like reading a book in one sitting to help you kind of get the story. Like, there's nothing like watching Lord of the Rings in one sitting, rather like watching 10 minutes one week and 10 minutes the next week. That, that would be, that would, that would, you would miss a lot from the movie. And so when you read through this, it's amazing how often the resurrection comes up. And by amazing, I mean like, well, yeah, you, you kind of would expect that. But when you read most epistles, they'll talk about it a couple of times in that because they have these long, deep, complicated ideas that they're unpacking. But every speech has the resurrection of Christ. Everything is focused on the resurrection of Christ. And Paul says that the resurrection is everything. Without the resurrection of Christ and without the resurrection of our own bodies, our faith is futile. And so the resurrection keeps coming up over and over again because this is what makes it possible to be anything that God has called us through all throughout the Bible. And so they proclaim his nature, his resurrection in the world, and then ascending into heaven. And once the Holy Spirit indwells the apostle, Peter begins immediately to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus as a what makes salvation for humans and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit possible, which enables the believers to have life in its fullest, making them unique to all other people. And so we're going to see this idea over and over again. The resurrection, the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. We have no hope. And you're going to see this over and over and over again. And then the second thing is without the resurrection, well, first, we have no life. And second, we have no hope. And third, we have no unity. We have no community. And you're going to see this over and over and over again as they preach. And every single time, the minute, like Peter, we all know Peter well enough. He was not good with words. And he was not good with getting his ideas out. He was the epitome of, that sounded better in my head. And then the minute the Holy Spirit dwells him, he gives this phenomenal speech eloquent ideas connecting never sticks his foot in his mouth once and he just perfectly espouses the resurrection the significance of it and then we see it again and we see it again and we see it with Stephen we see it with Philip and we see it with Paul and they keep coming to this resurrection this is the focus this is the center this is everything that guides them and you're going to see this as we go through and the idea is that the resurrection of Jesus for both the Jews and the Gentiles and the, both the Jews and the Gentiles will accept it, and both the Jews and the Gentiles will resist it and persecute the believers. There's no exception. And this is interesting. As, as Paul shows, or as Luke shows, the gospel is for Jews and Gentiles alike. It will also show that they both accept it, and they both reject it, and they both persecute those who have embraced the gospel pretty equally. Because this is the way the world responds. It doesn't matter ethnicity. It doesn't matter gender. It doesn't matter social studies. It only matters your heart. For the Jews, 
The resurrection is a return to an old problem. Jesus. They didn't like Jesus. They still don't like Jesus. Remember, it's only been about 40 days since the whole Jesus fiasco. Okay? And so 40 days later, Peter stands up and says, Jesus is back, and you killed him, and you need him. And they're like, oh, didn't we get rid of with that guy when we killed him and then he disappeared? And now he's back. And so for the Jews, this is the return to the problem of a false messiah. A false messiah that promised them one thing and did nothing to fulfill it. He didn't promise it. They thought he did. They made him think they promised it. And so they tried to eliminate getting rid of him. And so for them, the resurrection is a stumbling block. In the words of Peter, who gives his speech, but then also will write his own epistle. The idea that God would bring this false messiah back well, there's no way that God would ever do a miracle unless he approved of the bee. But we know that God can't approve of Jesus because he's a false messiah. God did a miracle and brought him back to life. Rather than embrace it or understand it, it's better just to attack it and destroy it. For them, this is a stumbling block because they can't see how God would have approved and used of this Jesus. And therefore, they will turn on the church with a greater wrath than they ever poured out on Jesus. For them, this is their stumbling block. This is their obstacle. For the Gentile, the pagan Gentiles, the idea of a resurrection is like, what? Like purple pigs that fly and have wands and make frogs appear. That's a stream of consciousness, by the way. We'd be like, what? That, that's, that's unfathomable. That's incomprehensible. That doesn't make sense. Because for the Gentile, they didn't value the body. They didn't value the material realm. You have to realize that Judaism and Christianity is the only two religions that actually have a resurrection of the body, that only values their body. And and, and even sometimes in Christianity, Gnosticism has creeped in. And Gnosticism is the idea that all that it matters is beyond this life and beyond the material realm. And sometimes we say, well, I can't wait until I die and go to heaven, and I believe this body and this cursed earth, and then everything will be great. And for Paul and John and Peter, they're like, no, 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 no. It is not until your body is resurrected, body and spirit return back together as one whole being. You're never meant to be ripped apart. That's called death, and that's a curse that Christ died to overcome. And until the kingdom of God comes back to earth, that was never meant to be ripped apart. That's called the fall. Until all in Christ and God and humans together, that was never meant to be separated. That's called God dwelling in the temple or the tabernacle with Adam and Eve. And until God and humans come back together and body and spirit come back together and the kingdom of God, the spiritual and the material realm come back together and all ethnicities come back together after the Tower of Babylon where we were separated, that is when salvation is complete this is the only religion that values the human body that values the material realm that jesus actually died to save it and for the gentile all that matters is the spirit and for the elite it's godhood and the body is left behind and what happens in the body stays in the body and that's the way they view it and they would either ascetic torture the body because it was evil or they will live it up in indulgence because it doesn't matter it's not really me And not only that, a human that comes back, a God that dies and comes back, 
they understand ascensions. They, they, they understand gods going up to the mountains, the cosmic mountains. They understand even humans like Perseus and Hercules who can climb the mountain, become king of the hill, and become God. But resurrection is something they, they can't comprehend. They have no vocabulary for that. They have no box to put that in. And so when we get to Acts, um, and we see, when we get to Acts, so in Acts, when we see Paul at the, in, in Athens, and he's preaching Christ and the resurrection, they're like, what is this nonsense? And, and they're baffled because the greatest philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they're like, you're incredibly intelligent and you're fluent and your ability to connect ideas and logic are phenomenal. But you're talking nonsense at the same time. And they're like, come here. It's almost like, come here, little pet. We would like to explore this interesting idea even more. Okay, we find you amusing because you're brilliant and phenomenal, but you're also weird. This is how they view it. For both the Jew and the Gentile, the resurrection is the obstacle. It's the stumbling block. This is the epitome. This is the theme that's going to go throughout the Bible. What seems futile, incomprehensible, a threat to our power base is the very thing that gives life, hope, and unity to the world if they could only embrace it. Yet, for the followers of Jesus, it is a resurrection that gives them everything. It gives them hope. It gives them the power to speak. And not power to overcome and throw down governments and to destroy those who are against you, but power to preach and witness and stand up for the gospel despite what the world does to you, which makes them confused even more. For the believer, this is what gives them hope. This is what allows them to boldly proclaim. Because the resurrection is the only thing that allows you to face unimaginable suffering and not lose hope. Because here's the thing. I always struggled. How can Christians in the First Testament and other parts of the world be tortured in horrible ways and do it with joy? Like, right? Americans, there's one thing we hate more than anything. It's lack of comfort. Okay? And, and, and they face it with joy, and they see it as nothing. And even in the early days, they would say, yes, we are not suffering like Christ. And like, that's kind of odd in a humanistic kind of a way, right? And, and then I began to realize as I go older, one, when you think that all you have is this life, or all that matters is this life, then of course that when this begins to be threatened, that becomes horrific. It is only the resurrection that allows us that you can be killed the body, but God will resurrect it anyways, and I'll have life for eternity. And what you do now is incomprehensible to what I'll have for eternity. But not just that. It's that what allows you to endure pain? Because you fear a greater pain. Why is it that a mother or a father is willing to inflict horrible pain on themselves in order to they were willing to jump into a fire knowing that they may burn and die in order to save a child because the pain of them suffering physically is nothing compared to the pain of what will happen to that child okay or other scenarios for the early believers the pain of losing loved ones the pain of them not experiencing the resurrection the pain of the gospel not spreading, the pain of not becoming the image of God, 
becomes far greater of a pain to them than any physical pain they can endure. And if you want to leverage a pain or a fear, you leverage it with a greater pain and a greater fear. Now, I don't mean you inflict it upon yourself, but you find the thing that you fear even more than that. You find the pain that you do not want to endure even more than that. And then you hold on to that, and you allow yourself to overcome. And that's courage. What allows people to dive into a war knowing they might die because of the greater pain of what might happen to their family if this enemy expands into their backyard. That's courage. This is what drives the believers. This is what drives the believers, the resurrection. The second theme is the power of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts begins with Jesus telling his apostles to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit would come upon them. It is the Holy Spirit of Yahweh that will give them the supernatural power to courageously continue the ministry of Jesus. Ten days later, after Jesus ascended into heaven on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit enters into the believers and empowers them. We already talked about this. Peter becomes amazing in a way that we've never seen him before in the way that he speaks. They begin to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Whereas recently they were cowering in fear. They literally, 40 days earlier, betrayed Jesus, walked out on him, abandoned him because they were afraid of what would happen to them. And now they're willing to stand up against an even greater boot stomping on their head because now they have the Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit. It empowers them to do Jesus. The same Spirit that empowers Christ to heal and do miracles and conquer the grave and death is the same Spirit that is now flowing through them and giving them the ability to do miracles and face persecution and expand the garden and the gospel to all people despite resistance and despite persecution. And this is what we must fully embrace and fully comprehend and grasp upon. They begin to heal. And the events of the dwelling of the Holy Spirit Pentecost becomes the basis for the book. And this becomes the main character. You need to realize that this is not the acts of the apostles. This is the acts of God through the Spirit. The main focus of this book is not the Acts of the Apostles. If it is, Luke failed miserably. There is very little that we know about Philip. Peter only gets a few chapters. You would think of all people he would. Even Paul, we don't really know anything about where he came from. We don't know a lot about what he did. And even Acts ends, if you've read Acts, it ends very abruptly. Like the American, the happy end, happy end of the story, you're like, what happened? What happened? God promises him he's going to go before Caesar. And he's now in Rome, and he's right about going to Caesar, and he's about ready to see whether he's going to be convicted or not, and the book ends. You're like, oh my gosh! It's like watching a few good men, and then somebody's turning it off at their last ten minutes. You're like, what? Or any courtroom case, okay? Or twelve angry men, or what all those jewelry things. You're like, what? You can't do that to me. Because this isn't a biography. This isn't about the apostles. This is about the Holy Spirit. This is about what God is doing through the Holy Spirit. And so the main character in the Gospels was God working through Jesus. And the main character in Acts is God working through the Holy Spirit. And the implication is, it doesn't matter what the Acts of the Apostles are, because the same Spirit that is in them is in you. Therefore, it only matters what the Acts of the Spirit is and how he's going to do that through you. And the same similar things that he does in them, he can do with you. But it's not their story. It's the story of God and how he's working through us. And so this is the main focus. This is the main character 
in this story. And so it focuses on the person of Yahweh. The rest of the book, you constantly see the Spirit led them, the Spirit led them, the Spirit led them. In the same way that it says that the Spirit led Jesus to be baptized, the Spirit led him into the wilderness, the Spirit led him to be tempted by Jesus. The Spirit, God, Jesus says, I would only go what the Spirit leads me and that kind of stuff. Is the same thing that we're going to see here with Acts. The third theme is Jews and Gentiles united. Jews and Gentiles united. All through the prophets, Jesus foretold of the day that he would bring all nations into the covenant community of Israel. And there's every prophet, prophetic prophecy of all nations coming to Christ for you. Jesus commissioned his apostles to go to the furthest parts of the earth as he saw in the Great Commission of Acts, Matthew 28, 16, and what we'll see him say in Acts 1, 8. As the apostles started sharing the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea, many Jews believed and received the Holy Spirit, but the vast majority rejected the gospel of Jesus. So the indwelling of the Spirit, followed by the speaking in different languages, became the validation that a person had received the Holy Spirit. So this is where you're going to see these two themes together. Okay, the Holy Spirit and the Jews and the Gentiles. In the first testament, the Holy Spirit never indwelt anybody. Nobody had the Spirit living in them. And and the reason is the only way that God can be with something is if it is righteous, if it is perfect, it is without sin. One of the one of the reasons that Adam and Eve was kicked out of the Garden of Eden is because God cannot be in the presence of sin. And it's not that he's too weak to handle it. It's that he's too righteous and holy for it to survive. And he eradicates it only by merely being righteous. And therefore, because he loves us so much, he spares us from that annihilation so he can die for us and redeem us and bring us back in. But he also, as a righteous being, cannot be in sin. Just like if you really truly embrace what is right and what is good, you cannot watch or listen to certain things because they are so evil. Not because you can't, you bad person, but because you can't handle it. Because it violates everything that is good and wholesome that you're trying to be in what you are in the spirit working in you. And it's horrifying to you. And so in the same way, God cannot be in the presence of evil for these different reasons and sin and, and, and unrighteousness. And so they're cast out of the garden. So when he brings his Holy Spirit and he places it on people in the First Testament, it doesn't indwell them. It comes upon them like a cloak or like a hawk resting on your, your shoulders or like in Lord of the Rings when the giant bird hawks come and grab you and lift you and take you. That's what it comes. And it only comes for a temporary time, only for a purpose. This is why we read so many times, and the Holy Spirit came upon Samson, and the Holy Spirit came upon Samson. Why would it say that so many times? Because it's leaving. It's, it comes for a specific task. And the vast majority of people who got it were only the kings and the prophets and the priests. There are exceptions to that, but only they got it. And so the Holy Spirit can indwell because of sin and because of the humanity. When we get to Jeremiah 31, 31, I mean, Joel chapter 2 does this, Ezekiel chapter 11 does this, but Joel, Jeremiah 31, 31 all say there's a day that's coming when God will pour out his spirit on people and it will fill you. And to the Jew, that's like mind-blowing. Like, what? And this is why David said, Take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. That's why he can't sing that song. Take not thy Holy Spirit. I can't even say it. But right? He used to sing along. That's theologically inaccurate for a Second Testament believer. David feared it because the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell and it doesn't stay. 
But we don't have to fear because I am convinced that neither life nor death nor heaven nor hell or anything below blah, 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 can separate from the love of God. You are sealed in the spirit of God and nothing can break that seal and on and on and on. Right? The spirit would come and indwell people. And it wouldn't just come on priests and prophets and kings. It would come on your children and young and old and free and slave and man and woman. Jeremiah 31 says, A day is coming when I will pour my spirit on you and I will write my law on your hearts. And you will no longer need anyone to teach you, but you will all need the law. And you're like, wait a minute, we're right here and you're teaching us. Because that's not what it actually meant. What it meant is you will no longer need anybody to teach you to know God. Not to expound on things, but to know God. Because in the first testament, the only people who knew God in an intimate relational vocabulary, talking to, hanging out with, was the prophet and the kings. Because they're the only ones that had the Holy Spirit on them, or the priests. And the only one that really knew the will of God was a prophet because he was the only one on the divine council of Yahweh. And if you don't know what that is, then go to my website, everything on the divine council. By the way, that's not a shameless plug because I don't make money off of that. So you go there and learn about it. So he was the one who was actually brought up into heaven and stood before God and the, the angels in the throne of God. And we see this with Micaiah in Kings, 1 Kings chapter 22 and, and Job when we, we had the angels that gathered together and Isaiah goes in the divine council in chapter 6 of Isaiah. And he's the only one that actually heard God speak and saw God and God would say, go and say this and say that to them. And when he went and spoke, that was the only way the people knew God because they didn't have the Holy Spirit to tell them otherwise. And if the prophet got it wrong, like in the case of Elijah, then nobody could fact check them because nobody had the Spirit. And Jeremiah says there's a day that's coming where all of you will know God. The divine counsel will be in all of you. And you will all be able to hear and listen to God and be led by God. And it won't no longer be this one person or that one woman telling you about God. And if one person says, Jesus told me, the Holy Spirit told me, you don't have to write your whole life on that because you all have the Spirit. And maybe he is, but you can also go to God and have that echoed to you as well. And you will all know him. And this is what the prophets promise. Luke, we see Jesus dying on the cross, atoning for your sins, making you now capable of having the divine God come into you. You are the mini micro garden of Eden now. And the spirit of God comes into you because you've now been atoned through faith and not works. And then that makes the Holy Spirit possible. And it doesn't rest on us. It indwells us. And then it stays with us. And it comes into everybody regardless of intelligence, skill, ethnicity, gender, social status, track record, reputation, by faith. And that power now flows. Because it's so new and so unique and so never under fully understood, God validates the indwelling of the Spirit by allowing the speak in tongues. The tongues become the outward proof that something inwardly happened. Just like Jesus said, you don't think I'm God and you don't think I can forgive this man's sins? I will tell you, get up and walk. Because the only way that he can make that guy walk is if God gave him the power to do it. And the only way God would give him the power to do it is if God approved of what Jesus said. But what Jesus said was claiming to be God. Jesus did miracles in his own words to validate who he was and what was happening. He healed the man so that they could physically see what had happened invisibly, the forgiveness of sins. And so now the Holy Spirit allows you to speak in tongues 
so that the world can physically see what has spiritually happened invisibly. And then when we get to chapter 10, the unfathomable, the Gentiles, will get the Spirit of God. And they can easily say, whatever. You've gone off the rails, Peter. There's no way that a Gentile will get it, let alone a Roman soldier that has crushed us like gnats on the sidewalk. And then all of a sudden, Cornelius and family begins to speak in tongues. And it validates. And they know. They all know what that was like. Because just a few months earlier, they were doing the same thing in an unfathomable, unheard of way, in a powerful way. And it's at this point that God validates this. And, this, and eventually, he won't do this every single time that everybody gets the Spirit. Because for us now, this is what's common. This is what we're used to. This is what we're familiar and now we have other things to look for, fruits and changed lives and that kind of stuff. This will become the validation of Jews and Gentiles truly being unified in one covenant community of people. Peter goes, and then Philip goes, and then we come to Paul, and he becomes the emphasis um, towards the second part of the book. And Paul continues to spread the gospel, and he goes to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles during his missionary journeys. This can be found in the fact that Paul always went to the synagogue. You're going to see this over and over again. And when he gets to the city, he always looks for the synagogue. He'll even get into certain cities where there is no synagogue. So he'll find where the Jews are gathering on the beach because there's no synagogue, and he'll go to them first. Regardless of where he goes, he will go to the synagogue first and he will preach to them because this is who God originally chose and this is who God wants to go out and spread the gospel. But Luke is not trying to say that the church was displacing. He's not saying that the, that the Gentiles are a secondary class people, nor is he saying that the Jews are being rejected or replaced by the Gentiles. Neither one of those points are being made. And when you get to Romans chapter 9 through 11, it's very clear that neither one of those things are what Paul is emphasizing either. It's not a second-class citizenship of Gentiles, nor is it a replacement of the Jews. Okay? It's just a way of doing things. Okay? It's a hierarchy of communication, not a hierarchy of importance. I only say hierarchy for a lack of a better word at this moment in my mind. He says the church, the Jewish synagogues, even at the end, and we're going to see this because even at the very, very, very end of Rome, where you're going to see a track record of the Jews hating the gospel, trying to kill the Messianic Jews and the Gentile Jews. And, and they finally got into Rome, and we, you'll see this. If there's ever a time to say, forget you, you horrible, evil people, I and God are done with you. You have crossed the line. And Paul's literally in jail and about ready to be possibly killed. Because the Jews have blown everything out of proportion and chased him to the ends of the earth in order to get him killed. And he's still with many rise in Rome. He goes to the synagogue and says, here's the gospel. And it shows that the Gentile, and yet the Gentile church is growing faster and bigger than the Jewish church at that point. And yet Paul's still saying, you're still part of God's plans. You're still important. You're still part of the kingdom of God. So this is not displacement. Yet the fact that the Gentiles became a prominent part of the church and become a huge source of the spreading of the gospel shows that they're not a second-class citizen in the community of people. It's just an order of events 
not an order of priority of our importance. And we need to protect ourselves from either extreme. And my prayer is that I will do justice and that the Holy Spirit can reveal this tension of the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Luke is trying to show, rather, that Jews and Gentiles are to be united as the true Gentile. Abram was not a Jew when God called him. He was a Babylonian. And yet he believed, and God credited it to him as righteousness. And he became a part of the people of God by his faith. And when the Jew, God came into him and chose him, he then told him, be a blessing to the world and bring everybody in. And then when the Jews came along and said, Oh, but Jesus, we don't need you. We are chosen by God and we have the law. We're already saved. Repentance for the Jew was unthinkable because they already were saved by merely being chosen and having the law. And this is why John, the baptizer, says, You think you're special because you're descendants of Abraham? God can make descendants of Abraham out of those rocks. Because Abraham wasn't even a Jew. It was by faith. And all throughout the Bible, you see in the First Testament, the Jews keep getting shown up. It's the Jews who are stealing from God in Jericho. And it's Rahab, the Canaanite, who comes to faith. It is the Jew who is the descendant of Abraham, Judah, who is prostituting himself to other people and trying to kill his brother Joseph and all that kind of stuff. And yet it's Tamar, the Canaanite, who values and shows him up in faith. He even says she is more righteous than I am. It is David, the epitome of a Jew, who is raping a woman and murdering her husband and a whole bunch of soldiers. And it is Uriah the Hittite that shines out as the moral man. It is David who has taken a census and is refusing to follow God. And it is Uriah the Jebusite, a foreigner, who is willing to sacrifice everything of his land for them to build an altar to stop what the plague of God is coming down on them. And we see it is David who is fleeing his son trying to kill him and has lost all faith in any hope that the promises of God will be fulfilled. And it's Ittite the Gittite, a foreigner who says, wherever you go, I will go. And David says, but it's not safe with me. He says, yes, it is, because God is with you. And David's like, oh, crap. He showed me up. We see this over and over again. It is the Canaanite woman and Jesus' life who is willing to have merely the scraps when the Jews won't even embrace the banquet. And over and over again, God keeps showing that the people who are closest to God tend to be the furthest away. And it is the people that are the furthest away who realize their need for it and they embrace it. And this is what the whole purpose was. But at the same time, God chose the Israelites. And so what God is trying to show here is that this new covenant people is both of us together. Now, today we're all Gentiles with maybe a couple of Jews here. But what we should be hearing is Democrat and Republican, masking and non-masking, vaccinated and non-vaccinated. This is our new Jew and Gentile people groups in modern-day America. And this is what God is saying. I don't care. All that matters is the Holy Spirit in you and what I can do with that. And that Now, I don't mean that it's not important to engage in a society that's wrestling over that, but it's important to engage with the Holy Spirit in a society that's wrestling over that, not to take sides and to battle it out and to not fight for primacy. 
This is how social change will happen. Social change is only going to be happening when the impossible becomes unified. What if the body of Christ became all these factions united in something greater? Facebook from us should look different than the rest of the world. And this is the point. The fourth and major theme is Jesus superior to the pagan gods. Now, this is a constant theme throughout the Bible. And it kind of disappeared in the Gospels because the Gospel was Jewish. But now with Acts going to the Gentiles, this primacy comes back. And now what you're going to have is you're going to have the Gospel going out to the pagan Gentiles. And over and over they're going to be like, we already have gods. And not only do we have gods that we worship, but we have gods that give us magic and power over them. Yet the disciples are going to blow that magic away with the power of the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't do magic. The Spirit has power. And then not only that, the gospel is going to threaten the financial income of all the money they make off of these gods and religions and selling things and worships. And what the gospel is going to show is I have something better to offer you than money. And so we're going to see over and over again that God is going to outdo the pagan gods and his power and his love and his spread and that kind of stuff. And so we're going to see this in the miracles he does when he goes to Malta and he's bitten and they're like, oh my gosh, you're a god. Or when they see him do things and they want to worship him. But what Paul's going to do is shift that to Jesus. Your theology teaches you that you can become a god. But I'm telling you that we are what we are because of God in us. And this is the focus here that they're going to emphasize here. The uniqueness of Yahweh and Jesus stands out throughout the book of Acts and that they are proclaimed by the believers to be far superior to all the gods, validated by many different miracles, which unlike the pagan practices did not require accompanying rituals or incantations. And we're going to see this over and over again. They're going to do rituals. They're going to do incantations. They're going to do magical spells like Harry Potter. And yet Peter will merely say, in the name of Jesus. And that's it. And where Jesus would just say, let it be, they will invoke the name of Jesus. And so not only will they demonstrate the same instantaneous, simplistic, non-ritualistic and incantation miracle, But by speaking the name of Jesus, they will show that they are not Greeks in the way they think that they have become gods, but they're pointing to the greater God. And that's important. And I think that's an important theme for us to hook on because the fastest growing religion in the West right now is Satanism and witchcraft and the occult and magic. And you'd be surprised how many practicing witches and magicians we have growing in America. And so you may have not faced this terribly a lot, in your life, but your children and grandchildren are. The structure of the book. The structure of the book flows out of Acts 1.8. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, or to the furthest parts of the earth, um, to the ends of the earth, depending on whatever translation you memorize that from. This is the structure. Acts is going to begin with Jerusalem. They're going to be all hunkered down in Jerusalem. They're going to receive the Holy Spirit. The church is going to begin to grow massively. Mostly Jerusalem Jews are going to begin to build this church in the beginning. 
where we'll talk about the difference between Jerusalem Jews and Hellenistic Jews as we go. And so it's going to grow. And then with Stephen in chapter 7, he is going to give this speech that's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak, on the Jewish tolerance of Christianity, which is not yet Christianity at this point. And they're going to begin to smash the church. And that's going to cause their scattering. And so then we lead into the next structure, whether they be going into Samaria, which is north. And I have maps in your document. If you've downloaded the Acts document, there's maps there in the beginning. And if you don't have the document, you can go to my website to knowingthebible.net backslash maps. And all my maps that I've created for the entire Bible, they're all done now, um, are there too. You just scroll to the very bottom, you'll see Acts. And so Samaria is north of that. And then north of that is Syria, greater Syria. And they'll begin to go there. And they'll start branching out to Hellenistic Jews and then Gentiles as well. And then eventually they will go further out into Rome. And for Luke, for Jesus, when he says to the uttermost ends of the earth, he means that literally to all the four corners, so to speak, of the round ball of earth. Okay, he means that. But when Luke is writing, he means to the ends of Rome, the Roman Empire. Because for them, that is. That is. I mean, they don't have airplanes. They don't have um, FaceTime. They don't have any of that. Rome is the world. And, and whether you agree with it or not, everybody in the Roman Empire views everybody outside it as barbarians. And, and Luke doesn't mean the gospel is not for them. But the idea is that's all they know. The idea of, like, it's kind of like the idea of you thinking, like, one day I can leave this planet Earth and go to another planet. That's, like, absolutely foreign. You're like, that's never going to happen. I know it's possible one day, maybe for somebody. We know people have done it with Apollo 13, all that kind of stuff, but not me. That's never going to And the vast majority are never going to happen. And that's how they view going beyond Rome. But at the end, you're going to see that Rome is the furthest most part of the Earth, and Luke is thinking that that is, but also is not. Because if you can get to Rome, then the elite in Rome, if they convert, they have the means to spread the gospel beyond the Roman Empire. The everyday normal person is never going to expand beyond the Roman Empire. But if we can convert the right people and bring the right people in the kingdom of God, then it can go. And so when Luke ends with Paul and Rome preaching to the Praetorian Guard and preaching to Caesar, in his mind, Christ's commission has been somewhat fulfilled because they've gone to Rome. And if you can get to Rome and convert them, then what is there to stop you now? You've converted the most powerful empire in the world with the most technological means in the world, the most um, technological ability to go anywhere else. And if you can get those people then, well, if you haven't read the last 28 chapters, what in the world can stop the word of God? And so if Rome can't stop it, then the world can. And so, yes, it means the ends of the earth, but for Luke's purposes, it's specifically the ends of the Roman Empire because the implication is if it gets there, there's no stopping the gospel. And not that Luke has any doubts before it hits Rome, but in a humanistic way of thinking, that would be convincing to everybody there's no stopping it. And so this is what he thinks, and this is how he interprets it. Though the world is his audience, Rome is the focus for this particular book. So the outline, 
we're going to follow is the witness in Jerusalem, Roman numeral 1, which is chapters 1 through 8. The Roman numeral 2, the scattering after Stephen's persecution and killing, martyrdom, 8 through 12. And then we're going to see the ministry of Paul and his missionary journeys, 13 through 21. And then we will see the trial of Paul in chapters 21 through 28. If you don't get these themes, you cannot see them developed. These are the things to look for. And sometimes I will not always point it out because my mind goes somewhere else and there's so many other things to talk about. Um, but this, but you have the same spirit that I do. And you can see that too. And so I would strongly recommend that you be reading Acts on your own and not just in class. Um, we will be reading it together, but it's still good to have it multiple times. Um, but when we, we these things are pointed out consciously for us, then it becomes easier to see them. Um, and then it becomes easier to see how the Spirit's taking them way deeper than this brief summary that we had. These are the big ideas that we're going to see fleshed out in detail.